What's up, witches, and welcome to Witch Space. I'm Gemini. And I'm Scorpio, and today we're talking about Caridwen, Celtic Goddess of Inspiration by Christopher Hughes. And I gotta say, I'm really excited about this. Because, um, I don't know if the listeners know, I think I've said it, but Caridwen is my goddess. And Christopher Hughes is not unknown to me. Um, He wrote a book called From the Cauldron Born that I have read. I think he's a fantastic writer. This book came out last year, 2021. So I think it's probably the newest book that we've ever talked about. Probably. Yeah, I don't think we've ever talked about something. It's it's pretty much the same year. I mean, yeah. well, only a couple of days into uh, 2022. But anyway, so I was very excited when I saw that he came out with this book, picked it up, and have not been disappointed at all. So a little bit about him. He's chief of the... Anglesey Druid Order. He's a teacher. He's a writer. He has a bunch of different titles. I mean, this man is very, um, very studied. And I guess we should start with the quote. (laughs) Every time. (laughs) So he perceives Caridwen as a goddess. But in the intro, he says, but what exactly is a goddess? And do they in fact even exist? This book does not expect you to conform to the manner by which I work with and perceive deity. Caridwen is flexible enough to be a psychological component to those who may be atheistic or non-theistic. And I love that. Agreed. I love that that's where we're going to start. I love that that's the quote you picked. Oh, good. Um, I, this, okay, thing I want to say to the audience before we dive right in. mm -hmm. You've heard us on the podcast talk a lot about the things that we don't like in books and the things that we do like in books and what kind of texts we think are valuable, et cetera, et cetera. I think that this book is like the epitome of a witch space text. I think it is detailed. I think it's got um, really well thought out analysis. It's got end notes and footnotes and, and citations it's a very academic book. Yes. But it also is giving you all of the information you, I think you could possibly want in this context. So if at any point you're kind of wondering, like, what is it that Witch Space is really looking for? I think you can look to this and really understand the vibe that, that we come to books with. Yeah, absolutely. And here's the thing. You know, if you're listening and you're going, ah, but Carolyn's not my goddess or... I don't know, why should I care about this book? I think it's exactly what Gemini just said. You know, the way the information is disseminated gives you the tools to now look at other works for your own deities and say, mm-hmm. does it have this depth? Am I getting this kind of explanation? So even if Caridwin is low on your list of priorities, I think you should read this book. I think this book... Because the other thing is we always talk about mythology here, right? We go, you should read mythology. You should read the mythology of your gods. But what should you be looking for? And I think Mm -hmm. this book will tell you, oh, okay. If I can find a book or even if that's not a book available for the god you're looking for, but if you can piece together information, what did Christopher Hughes look for? What can I look for if there is no other writer um, who is doing the same kind of service to a particular god that Christopher Hughes does for Caridwen, what should I look for? So I think yeah. everybody can benefit from reading this, whether you're going to, you know, be a priestess or a child of Caridwen or not. 
Yeah, because full disclosure, I am not. Right. Right. I did not read this book with the intention of changing my practice in any way. But having read this book, there are aspects that I am absolutely thinking about differently and thinking about the goddess, uh, the idea of godhood. That is something that from this book, I've been thinking a lot about this idea that like, does it matter? Mm. You know, because I think we've had conversations on the podcast about, you know, whether or not um, people are respectful of the gods or treating them in a certain way. And and when I say we, I mostly mean me because this is kind of like my pet project that I feel like I've talked about a lot. You know, oh, are you, you know, are we worshiping in the right cult- cultural context? Are we treating these deities respectfully based on their historical aspects, et cetera, et cetera? But then you read this text and Christopher Hughes walks you through every step of Caridwin from like mythological figure to modern goddess and and makes the point as a Welsh man who practices his traditional culture that it doesn't matter. Yeah. That it fundamentally does not matter that the process of apotheosis, right, the creation of deity is valuable regardless of how you get there. Yeah. And so for me, am I going to worship Caridwin? Probably not. But am I going to maybe reevaluate my stance on the way people interact with deity? And maybe will this make me more patient and less judgmental? I think so. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And, and, and like, I, and it highlights my I wouldn't point. have thought of it. Yeah, and it highlights my point that you do not have to go into reading this book because I didn't think you were going to all of a sudden say, yeah. oh, you know, but there's Surprise. value. Yeah, but yeah. there's value in it. And I think that's important that people can hear this and go, okay, of course Scorpio loves it, but look at what Gemini got out of it and she has no yeah. intention of following this. You know, one of the reasons I've been so hesitant to talk about Caridwin on the podcast is it's it's personal, it's private. Yeah, You know, just like when I was hesitant to talk about my cultural practices and how I've combined things, you know, I think, uh, you know, I don't particularly want to put that much out there. Mostly, and this is going to sound funny, not because of the listeners so much as the listeners who actually know me in real life. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like, yes. I do, if you are a listener and I don't see you ever in person... And you email me about Carolyn. I'll be. I'll talk to you all day and all night about it. I'm mm-hmm. thrilled. What I don't want is the people that I know all of a sudden coming up to me and going, "So you know, Carolyn's like, I'm not talking about it because it's private and it's personal." And I don't know if people can understand that. What I'm trying to say. I think it makes total sense because I think that there is an inherent boundary in having a podcast and like being a. a host of a podcast versus being a listener and for us that boundary is physical space right i have yeah. we've never met most of you when you reach out there is i can there's a physical barrier of space between the two of us so that i don't have to worry about like the way that you're perceiving me or the interaction that we're having it's just this pure sharing which i think is so beautiful and one of the reasons why we love hearing from you guys so much but we've already got established boundaries with the people that we know in real life And if you just decide to cross that boundary and try to be, like, a listener and not a real person that I know, like, that's, mm -mm. we didn't negotiate that. You haven't asked me. Like, it's not respectful. Right. 
Um, and I, but I think that like that's part of the reason why I was so adamant. Like I want to be Gemini and Scorpio. I don't want our names on the podcast because right. when we started, I was very scared. I was very afraid of what being open about this would do to the perception of others around me. And I think that like, I hope that our listeners can see that we are becoming more open and more comfortable, but this, these are deeply personal practices and deeply personal experiences. And I think that having that physical spa- spatial boundary makes it easier for us to then be like, you know what, I do want to share my relationship with Caridwin. I do want to share my cultural practices. I don't want to feel forced in my regular life right. to share things that are not my regular life. And the other thing that people... I mean, maybe we've discussed this or not. We don't discuss our daily practices or our rituals, even with other people in witch space. Yeah. That's not a conversation. I don't <laughs> ask you what you have done with Hera or Hermes. or I, I mean, to me, that's it's like none of my business. And even though this is yeah. all we talk about. I mean, we talk about this on the podcast, off the podcast, but I feel like that's none of my business. You know, um, you share things and I'll share things and we'll talk about stuff. But God, I mean, one of the Scorpios, we've talked so much about magic. I got to tell you something. I have no idea, no idea how she celebrates certain things because we have never mm-hmm. talked about it. It's one of the things we, I think we've had little hints with other people, but I have no clue. And that's fine with me. I'm not supposed to know. It's our practice. You know? Okay. So are you ready for this? What? Uh-oh. I'm going to connect it to the book. <laughs> oh, beautiful. Yeah, let's so, get back in there. There's a whole discussion, and I don't remember what chapter it is. Mm-hmm. It might be multiple. It's probably multiple chapters because I remember it so well, where Christopher Hughes talks about this oral tradition in Wales and how the oral tradition of passing on information was and is so important and makes this really good point that, like, we value written word more in our modern society than we do oral tradition, but for most of history, oral tradition was how we pass things on. And I think that that's kind of what we're doing with these books, right? We are creating an oral tradition by coming to the podcast and speaking about the things that we learned and the way that we utilize them. And the thing about oral tradition is and this is, this is kind of a thing that I was thinking about more than like specifically written in the book. The thing about oral tradition is the things that get passed on are the things that are the most important to the community. Mm, true. Right? You, do, <laughs> you don't pass on historically your, your UPG, your unverified personal gnosis. Right. It's a thing like if you're sharing it with another person, it has to be valuable to the other person. And whether that value is in information you're providing or just like sharing a story that makes people excited or interested, we don't remember the stories that weren't good, that weren't interesting, that people didn't care about. So for us, I don't know if it's valuable to share our our personal individual practices because that's not something that we're giving to the community. And I think the point of an oral tradition, both in the sense of passing on the story of Caridwin and in the sense of which space podcast, is that our goal is to bring you the most true information. And I mean it 
truth in like the spiritual like resonates with your soul kind of way and not necessarily like the scientific way right um and i think that also led me to think you know hey maybe i should be a little bit gentler on people who do a lot of upg and share a lot of upg because they're making their own little small communities right and maybe that doesn't get passed on maybe in 20 years we don't remember people who were like i'm best friends with lucifer but that doesn't mean that it wasn't valuable to their little community as it happened. Yeah. So to piggyback on that, this mm-hmm. idea of telling our stories. One thing that he says in the beginning of the book is how he's going to tell you the story of Caravan. He's going to go back in time. <laughs> yes. But that it doesn't exist in a vacuum. In other words, everybody's little stories, everybody's connection with Keridwin is going to be different. It's going to be valuable. Yeah. So I like that he starts off that way so that, yeah, he's an authority, but there's so much more out there. And he wants you to know that from the get-go. Yeah. He's very open about the kind of there are no right answers in spirituality thing, Mm -hmm. which I think is a very clear sign that this book was written recently (laughs) because I think a lot of times in the older texts, it's a very authoritarian kind of tone. And Christopher Hughes throughout the book is like, listen, this is how I do it. This is how they did it. You can do it however you want. Yeah. And I, (sighs) it's nice. It's nice to read. And he writes it in such a, an academic way where it's like, you feel validated it doesn't feel like a thing that somebody tacked on at the end to be like, oh, but you could do whatever you want. Right. No, this feels like a genuine analysis that he is per- like giving to you and saying, based on based on my deep analysis of the text, you could do whatever you want. Yeah. And I think when you have somebody who is such an expert telling yeah. you, when, who's such an authority telling you, yeah, it's okay. It's like, wow, good. Thank God. Right? It's yeah. Like, <laughs> yes. Made me feel good. So here's the thing. Where shall we start? Well, I write in the books. So. No, I know. But, you know, usually we go chapter by chapter. And I was saying this to Gemini before we got on the podcast. I said, I don't know how much of the myth of Caridwin we should discuss and how we really should talk about the things around it. For example, I would almost skip chapter two and go right to chapter three, the power of mythology. I. Mm Mm-hmm think that that is probably a good idea. So what I would like to say about the myth of Caridwin as far as reading the text, for somebody who is not knowledgeable about Caridwin, I would suggest finding like a baby's first mythology book. (laughs) As far as like, if you want the story really just simply, this is probably not the text um, because it is a very well analyzed myth. But he does mention, he does mention different writings on Caridwin in the book. So people could get this book and then like look at what he's suggesting and then come back to this book. But this book does do a really good telling. I would almost say like Google it really quick. Read like the Sparknotes version. Just because not not knowing the myth already, I had to go a lot slower. Well, but the myth is right at the beginning, right? In the prologue. Yes. The prologue he's telling you. But it, again, I just think it's a little bit, I wanted the kid's version. Got it. You know, he, right. the way that he writes being so academic, mm-hmm. I needed the kid's version before I got into 
the I have read every telling of Caridwin ever possible, and this is my interpretation of it. And that's easy to Google, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I do agree. I think we should start with chapter three, because I think the power of mythology is one of those chapters that you can read whether or not you worship Caridwin, and it will be helpful to you. So he does talk about the fact that the power of mythology is to really have humans learn about who we are. And it, yes. he differentiates between mythology and legend. And he did it in such a way that I kind of had to step back and go, wait, what did he just say? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know what I mean? So what does he say? He says mythology is the legend of the gods and legends are the mythology of man. And I love that because it kind of gives you the sense, you know, were these people alive? Were they not? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think that he does a really good job. <laughs> he does a really good job while being this incredibly like logical, sequential thinker of giving space to kind of the liminal and the spiritual and the not quite understandable. Right. Because Englishly, in the English language, it is not a particularly understandable sentence to say mythology is the legend of the gods and legend is the mythology of man, right? It's sort of one of those, like, don't use the definition of the word in the, don't don't use the word in the definition. Right. But it has a visceral response. Yeah. Your body understands this concept, even though your mind is kind of like, what does this mean? And I think that it, I think that with this whole practice, with spirituality, with religion, with reconstruction concepts especially, you have to give space to mythology as a thing that doesn't make sense, right? Like, it, it, we don't have to explain it. You don't have to explain it. We do that all the time. I especially am notorious for trying to explain everything, but, like, you, it doesn't need to be scientific. It doesn't need to be consistent, Um, he makes a comment in this chapter, modernity has preserved the words themselves whilst simultaneously causing many to consider that only the words themselves matter. Again, this emphasis that we care about the written word so much more than we care about, like, just passing on the stories. We have versions. All of these stories have versions now, when in the past... They all, they're all the same story. It would have just depended on who was telling them. And so that, that line continues. The eye is taken away from the vast space between the lines wherein lies the magic. Part of the magic of what we are doing as witches and what we are doing specifically in terms of reconstructing ancient spiritualities, we're taking away the magic when we explain everything. Yeah. Part of it just has to be allow your body to vibe because <laughs> your body gets what the that original quote is. Your body gets myth as the legend of gods and legend as the myth of man. Your body gets that. It, it yeah. makes sense. I, it would take me a full two pages to be able to explain <laughs> logically why that makes sense in the English language. But inherently, I know what it means. And one of the things that he also focuses on is, okay, so you're reading this mythology, you're learning about this God, but what does it mean today? Yes. What can we take away from this stuff today that maybe 
it's good to know what people did in the past and he's going to go into it in depth. But at the end of the day, what does anything of this mean to you now? And that's what we have to go with. No matter how many people have said whatever they've said about Caridwin in the past. And he talks about the, um, the Bardic, the Welsh Bardic tradition, which he's a Mm -hmm. part of, uh, the keepers of, I guess, the myths, the ways. Yeah. And even within that tradition, he's talked about how they have changed. They have, in some senses, failed to keep Caridwin alive the way she is now. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. What I do love also is he really, like, breaks down these concepts for you. He'll reference other writers, mm-hmm. other historians, etc. Um but he always kind of brings it back to making it useful. Not just about, like, thinking about what does it mean to you, but giving you a useful tool. So, like, towards the end of the chapters, he'll give you a sigil and tell you, okay, look at this sigil and contemplate this sigil with the context of everything you've just read. Right? Myth- he's talking about mythology as the story of origins, as explaining the human experience, giving us, um, you know, literal depth and experience. And then he gives you this sigil that he has drawn that kind of captures this mystery and these this specific myth that he's talking about and says, all right, think about it. And I think that that felt more real to me because, again, this book is very academic. Even I was kind of going slowly through it. Yeah, yeah. It's not a quick read. It was giving me very – you know how, like, Christians sometimes, like, read the Bible mm-hmm. and they, like, highlight and, like, analyze and, like, through the year? This is the kind of book where I could see myself doing that. Like, throughout the whole year, slowly going through one chapter, annotating that sort of thing, slowly going through another chapter. But your brain is just, like, kind of – working so hard to understand these concepts and to really think through what he's saying. And then he's like, here's a sigil. And you're like, oh, I, it, I get it. it. It weirdly puts the concepts together in such an understandable way that it, it makes you feel the magic. Yeah. You know, and I think especially like as someone who works with sigils a lot, it's really powerful. You know, because... I think a lot of times you make a sigil and you like throw it away or you make a sigil and you like are you're immediately using it for something. But he's very much just like, just think about it. Just think about it. Just use this as a meditative tool. Well, here's the thing. When you're talking about the Welsh bardic tradition, you're talking about he, he breaks it down to three um, vital principles. One is learned. It's mm-hmm. not instinctive. And I love that he said that. The oral tradition, which we talked about, and we're going to talk about some more, and of course, the literary part. Caridwin is a goddess of learning. Yes. So this idea that you're not going to come to her and just feel your way through, that's not part of of worshipping her. Mm-hmm. You know, part of worshipping her or working with her, if you don't want to see her as a goddess is the fact that you cannot separate learning from the magic. Mm-hmm. Right? When it comes to Karen, when we're talking about both. So the fact that he makes you think 
is because, yeah, this is not supposed to be something that he's just going to say, you're going to nod your head and go, okay, got it. No, think about what I am saying. And I, I really do think that he expects you, if you're going to take this seriously, to look at some of the things that he says, this is what I read, this is what you should read. I think he thinks you're taking it seriously because this is what oh, she yeah. would expect from any of her children. So, And I think he does a good job, even right at the end of that chapter, of kind of giving you that energy without necessarily explicitly saying it because that last two paragraphs is very much about how Caridwin is not independent. She, she's not an independent mythology. She is tied into Taliesin and to these other stories and the cauldron and the Awen and all of these things are tied together. Mm -hmm. And so you can't just look at her as, I'm going to read this myth about Caridwin and call it a day. There is an ecosystem. And it's very interesting to think that, I thought of this book like a thesis. Like mm -hmm. this is Christopher Hughes' thesis on Caridwin. But it's a really clever technique of writing the way that he ties this overarching idea of the ecosystem into each section that he analyzes, the ecosystem of mm. mythology and meaning, the ecosystem of Welsh bardic tradition, the ecosystem of Caridwin and her stories. Mm. It's, it's beautifully woven through the text where you kind of realize everything is tied together. So we're talking about... Um the different principles. You already started talking about the oral, the craft and music of the tongue, this idea that um, Welsh culture and music and poetry, right? Mm -hmm. They have to be harmonious. It doesn't have to just be that the words are good, that the person who wrote them um, yes. wrote something that's good, but it has to be pleasing to the listener. So there's something about, it's not just what you say, but how it's said, how it sounds Sound mm -hmm. is important. And, you know, we've talked about it before. I'm a word witch. Now you kind of see, like, where this comes from. <laughs> now I get right? it. This idea that things should be in rhyme, that we should be um, very focused on the aesthetics as well yeah. as what you're doing. It should, it should all work harmoniously. Nothing should be forced. And then he goes into the different eras of the Welsh bardic tradition. You know, I think it's really important to... Look at the fact that when you're talking about ancient religions, you're looking at myths, myths that have been interpreted different ways mm -hmm. throughout time and where it's brought us now. Because when you look at the myth of Caridwen and how she has been changed, how she has been vilified and then ascended to the role of goddess, she was not considered a goddess in the beginning. That, that mm -hmm. term was never used, is what I'm trying to say. So this idea that she went from being a magical being to being a witch in the worst sense of the word witch, right? Mm -hmm. Of being seen as something that's evil, something that is in her cauldron instead of transforming, is really creating something that is bad. To now coming not back to her myth, but elevating her now to the role of goddess. And he really wants us to understand, or to at least know, the history behind that. Because when you think about that, how many gods do we have out there that possibly are going through the same thing? It's giving very, um, the spiral dance. 
Mm. Because it's very much like you're coming back to the same point but higher yeah. than you were. Um, which, throwback to year one of Wish Face. <laughs> but um, yeah, and, and I think that the manner in which he gives us the history is so beautifully written also because it's it's very unbiased. Mm. There's not a point where I'm sitting there and I'm like, this is what he wants me to think. You know, um, he he does a really good job of saying, you know, this is my view of Caridwin, but this is this is what happened, and this is how people saw her, and this was real when people saw it. Yeah, and I I like that a lot because especially especially in Hellenismos, especially with just Greek practitioners in general right now, we have a tendency to try and rewrite the story. Yeah. And there's a lot of people who are out there being like, oh, well, Persephone 100% agreed to go to Hades. That was – she was in on it the whole time. And it's like, okay, she – there's no text. There is no text Mm. that says that, right? There are definitely some interpretations where she was like a powerful ruler in it, and that's great and we love that. But like there's no text that says that. Like at least with Caridwin, if you want to be like, she's a horrible witch, there's a text. There's a historical precedent for that. Um, but also is rewriting the story the myth that the world needs? You know, and that's where we come back to being learned, right? Yeah. This idea that he says at one point, she doesn't just ask that of her children. She demands it. Yeah. Um, and when you're talking about goddesses and ways to pay tribute, which he also, he also discusses how to do that, but... You know, I fixated on that for a moment because I think a lot of times, you know, the problem is it's hard. It's hard to figure out what to read. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Right. Um, Who do you read? What should you read? And then you read something, you love it, and you find out something horrible about that author and you go, oh, God, you know, like now what? Mm -hmm. Um, But he does say a couple of things. He says the learned arts work on three levels, and I wanted to talk about them. He says they affect the physical world. They do. Once you've written Mm -hmm. something, it's out there. Right. Once you have learned something, you're going to do something with that information. So it's going to affect the world. They transform the internal constitution. Yeah, I think we are changed with everything that we learn. And then they uh, encourage the ethereal, subtle and magical attributes of the craft itself. You know, we talked about last podcast making the time. Yeah. And I think this is such an encouragement to that. Learn as much as you can. Intuition is awesome. But we got to learn stuff. We have to really be able to, if somebody asks us about something, to be able to answer them, not from my gut, mm-hmm. always. Sometimes there are things that you have to go with your gut. But to be able to say, have you read this? Maybe this would help you on your path to blank. Right? Yeah. We're all going to read different books. And that's the great thing that, you know, I may have a question and you've read a book or somebody, sometimes people in our audience tell us about books and I get so super excited. Yeah. And if we think about it in the context of specifically that Welsh bardic tradition, not only do we need to know what we're talking about, but we need to be able to say it right. in, a, in a way that is understandable. It doesn't necessarily need to be beautiful, but it needs to be something that you can communicate and that other people can understand. Yeah. I think there's a lot we can learn from the Welsh bardic tradition. Agreed. <laughs> Big yeah. agree. Are we going to create a witch space bardic tradition? Should we start that? I think th- I think witch space is a bardic tradition. I think that this, I think that we count as an oral tradition, 
And okay. I, I ref- I'm not even like – there was a little tiny voice in my head that was like, that's really – like, that's really egocentric. That's like a lot. Nah, fuck that. We, we're a bardic tradition. We're a very tiny one. But we absolutely are. We are an oral history. So you should dedicate that to Caridwen. You should do the podcast every time you record is now for Caridwen. Now it's for her. I know. I definitely dedicated this podcast. Um, so, but he does stress before people say, well, where does the magic come in? It's tied into it. Just yeah. like we were talking about the writing and how it sounds, you can't separate the two. It has to be written well, and it has to be pleasing to the ear. Well, here's the same thing. You have to learn. You have to study, right? But that doesn't mean that you can't do things that are intuitive in magic. In fact, this should help Mm -hmm. your magic. This could be the foundation for your magic. The more you know, and this we have said, and especially when it comes to sit and spells, you know, the more you know, the easier it is to whip something up. Yes. Right? That year that you gave me stuff, and I gave you that stuff, and we had to figure out how to put it together – that was so fun. It was fun. We have to do that again. Yeah. No, big agree. We do need to do that again. You know, the more you know, the easier that gets. Because yes. it's just like cooking. When you first start cooking, you need that cookbook. Oh, my God. Yes. Right? And you freak out if you don't have it because you go, oh, my God. How much do I have to? And then after a while, you're like, you know what? I think it takes this. Maybe you added something else. And you go, oh, I like this better. And you don't worry about it so much anymore. And people look at you when this – we were talking about cooking before we started re- recording the podcast. People look at you when you can cook as like this, you know, like this goal person. Like, oh, my God, I wish I could do that. That's so impressive. It's the same way that we look at witches who have been witches for 30 years. Yeah. It's it's not because they were born – they didn't jump out of Caridon's cauldron immediately capable of all and every magic. Right. They learned over time. And time is something that I feel like we con- – like we as a society and specifically America because I don't go anywhere else. America treats time like bullshit. Like we can just skip it. Like we can somehow <laughs> bypass time. And this book very clearly delineates – how essential and important time is to the development of any and all practice. Yeah. If you want to think about it just in the context of like a practitioner in Caridwin, learning takes time and you're dedicating your learning and you're giving your learning like learning is for Caridwin and that's what she demands you do. But even in the context of Caridwin existing as a goddess, without the historical time that Christopher Hughes is, is dictating to us, Caridwin never becomes a goddess. Well, we got to be nicer to time. And I, as you were talking, I was thinking, yeah, we definitely do not respect time because, I mean, in our profession, let's just go to our profession really quickly. Okay. <laughs> um, sometimes teachers ask the most basic things and I look at them and go, haven't you been doing this for a while? Mm-hmm. Because we don't take the time, there we go, time, to go... I just taught this lesson like this. Was I happy? And you don't have to even write it down. Yeah. Just in the in the four minutes between classes in high school that we have, think about what you just said to that class. What didn't work for you? What could you have done better? What can you tell them tomorrow? Mm-hmm. If you don't do that, then you are spitting out lesson after lesson after lesson, year after year after year. You're not learning about your craft. And I'm going to dare to say the kids aren't learning much either. And if I, <laughs> if we want Gemini to talk about how much she hates bureaucracy, <laughs> th- 
We specifically set up curriculums on mm. state and federal levels to bypass time. Mm-hmm. Right? In in high school in New York State, you have 45-minute periods. I see kids for 45 minutes and I am expected to teach them everything in chemistry, let's say, over the course of 180 days in 45-minute periods. And I'm hoping that I'm building off of material that has been covered previously, but the curriculums don't actually get built in a way where they're thinking about, all right, well, what's going to transfer next? I think, you know, now they kind of are with NGSS, but that's a whole different conversation. Um, we we treat all of our time as discrete, as these little increments. Right. But everything's continuous. Yeah. Everything's continuous. Everything I learned should come from what I learned before. Right. And And the only way, and the thing is, we also treat time as once you get to be an adult, you don't have to learn more. You, you, once you have a certain knowledge yeah. base, you're good. And that's not true for any profession, right? right? You should always be growing and learning and adapting. And and you're going to suck at some things at first. And that's okay. And maybe some of those things never become your thing. But you try it, right, as, as people. And I think that's what he's trying to get at here when it comes to what happened with Caridwin, right? How people have perceived perceived her but also for the people that follow her, Mm -hmm. right? Her children. We're supposed to. It's not, uh, do you want to? No. Whatever you do, she totally expects you to keep learning on this, to keep bettering, to be better the next time, the next day, the next minute. And I think if we take, even if you're not somebody who's going to follow Carolyn, but take everything you do in that vein not only will you be better at X, Y, and Z, but I think you'll feel more fulfilled. I think you'll feel happier at whatever it is you do. If you think about that, uh-oh, hot take. I see it coming in. I I'm see ready. it in your face. Go ahead. Okay. So back at the beginning of the book, chapter yeah. four, Quest for Meaning. Okay. Possibly my favorite chapter in the entire book because I am okay. obsessed with this idea of enchantment. And for, the, for anybody who is reading this book, it's on page 24. It's the second paragraph. The paragraph starts, the world needs enchantment. It always has done and always will. Every generation will carry its own enchanters. Those who for reasons unknown, even to themselves, rise to a different calling. Those who feel the pulsing heartbeat of magic flowing through the apparent world, coursing, rising, and falling. In our increasingly secular world, perhaps there has never been a more appropriate time for the old gods of the old world to make a comeback. It may very well be the reasons why so many are turning their faces towards these ancient archetypes. This is also a philosophical concept, and we know on this podcast how much Gemini loves her philosophers. As the chapter goes on, Christopher Hughes picks up on a really incredibly accurate and valuable understanding of enchantment, and that is when you lose enchantment as a person, you lose your connection to the things that make you happy. Mm. Right. Side effect of of disenchantment, depression, feeling unfulfilled, feeling unable to move forward. I do not care what the thing is that enchants people. I don't care if it's Caridwin. I don't care if it's Christianity. I don't care if it's cooking. I don't care what it is for you. But we need to have magic in our lives. Mm. We need to have an openness to magic in our lives. And why did this connect for me? Because I think about the difference between 
elderly people who are open to technology and who are not. Okay. People, it's it's a thing that has been studied, but people who are, you know, elderly, mm-hmm. right, and are comfortable, allow themselves to learn about technology and get comfortable with technology are typically more able to access community care. They're more able to access their families through, you know, FaceTime or video call or whatever. Um, they're more connected to other people and yeah. therefore happier and more fulfilled. I don't know statistics on how much more, but people who can use technology are more enchanted. That openness to the magic, and later in the book, Christopher Hughes specifically says that in Welsh, the word for science and the word for magic are kind of the same thing. So I love yes. that. Yeah. The the elderly people who are more open to that magic are rewarded with connection to the rest of the world. And so even if your enchantment is not going out and doing a spell, finding a way to be open to magic in the world and magic literally or magic in the sense of a thing I don't understand yet physically makes your life better. It makes you happier. It makes you less sad. It makes you more connected. It makes your life better. Yeah. And obviously this also is like a self-call out because I spend a lot of time being stubborn about things when in reality I should just be like, I'm going to be open to this now. And being open is hard and I don't like it. But this book and and this sort of myth itself, the whole point of Caridwin's cauldron was to make a potion for her son. And that sure didn't work out. But there is an openness in that myth because Caridwin continues on. Caridwin, Caridwin continues to bless the bards despite her anger in that situation. There's still an openness. But there is this looking at the mythology in the sense that that is her son. Right at the end, that is her yes. Son. At the end, and this idea that the whole I, the whole point of the myth is to show the transformation. Yeah, yeah. But she could have just killed him. Okay, but then we wouldn't have had the transformative part at the end, which then there would not be the openness to the magic. Oh, that's true. But I think you know you're saying that, and I'm thinking about people in general when people get so frustrated with, you know, a lot of what's been going on in the world. Right. Yeah. And staying at home is because we've been cut off from things that have magic for us. For some people, it's going to museums, you know. Yes. And virtually seeing it is not the same thing as being in the presence of. And I think we've all had that experience of seeing something, a work of art online, and then you finally get to visit the thing. And you're like dumbfounded because now it's not just you think you know everything about the piece until you stand in front of it and you go, I know nothing. Right. And that's magical. Being able to be in the presence of something like that. So I think that, yeah, you're right. It's it's we have to. We have to acknowledge and we have to give ourselves permission, because I think at least in the U.S. We talk about self-care because if we don't say self-care, people won't take time off. They won't Mm -hmm. do things that make them happy because they feel like I'm awake. So I have to be productive today. Why? Why do you have to be productive If what's magical to you, if what gives you enchantment is to, I don't know. uh, Play Animal Crossing? (laughs) Play Animal Crossing. Mm, (laughs) Feeling called out here. Um, Do it. Why do you have to be productive? So I think that that's also hard for us here, our mindset here um, 
in the U.S. with thinking like, oh, it's okay. It's okay for me to want to have that magic yeah. in my life. I don't have to work for it, quote unquote. I can just be, I'm just entitled to have this. That's a pretty big deal. And I think that if we think about how do I want to do this? Because part of me wants to be like, if we think about the three things at the end of the book, the different spirits, mm. but also even if we just think about it in context historically, in the world before America and before TV and all of that, we did so much non-productive work. You know, f- women learned how to embroider in places like Wales and England. And that artistic talent, sure, could be used for things like tapestries and, and clothing for artistic purposes. But a lot of times it was just a skill that they were learning. Right. Right. Not every woman was going to go on to be a master embroiderer. Okay. Embroiderer. That word really got stuck in my mouth there. Um, not every woman was going to go on to to make fabric art for her community or for but that was something that was passed on because it was a it was a fun thing to do it was calming it was relaxing it was a thing that women did you know we we had these skills just for having skills it was just a thing that humans did learning was just a thing that humans did you didn't have to monetize it right it was part of your spirit and that feels like another valuable lesson from this book, whether or not you're going to work with Caridwin in the future. Right. The human spirit is not about how much work we do or whether or not, you know, whether or not we're learning enough or keeping up with anyone else. Right. Whatever version. I, I just think of like if you're a person who's reading this book and you're like, oh, I really want to really want to dive into Caridwin as like this stereotypical medieval witch concept. Go for it. Go for it because it's about being in touch with your spirit. And at the end of the book, Christopher Hughes is discussing the three different spirits that you can get in touch with right. um, in Welsh, which I don't know how to pronounce. Well, before but, we get to that, go ahead. Yeah, yes. No, you go. I was going to say, because I know that there's a lot to cover here and we're not going to get a chance to, but I want to at least mention a couple of the chapters so that people have a better idea of what's going on. So chapter 10 is called Caridwen. And it talks about her name. And it talks about, oh, wow. Like I had no idea about so many of the different pronunciations and the way it was written. And he explains Mm -hmm. one of the reasons we have all these different changes is because Welsh is not supposed to be written down back then. It's supposed to be, you're supposed to hear it. So people are going to pronounce yes. things differently. So I thought that was interesting. I also thought that when you get to the, he finally gives us a 21st century meaning. So he takes us on this journey. Yes. This transformation, if you will, of Carolyn's name until he finally lands on the last one. And he, he finally comes to the meaning as a blessed holy woman of angular bending magic. This doesn't really mean anything until you've read everything else and you see what people have tried to do define her by her name, let's say, and how it hasn't always hit the mark. But you need to get through all that. And I just thought that's a really great chapter. The next chapter is Caridwin and the Cauldron. So here's the thing. He doesn't just take you through Caridwin, her name, but also the cauldron. Yes. Because it's important because she's the mother of Alwyn and the Alwyn is from the cauldron. So 
what is a cauldron supposed to be? So he even takes you to the basics. Like it's supposed to be the hearth. It's supposed to be, it's always yes. transformative. Because when you think about the cauldrons in people's homes once upon a time, it's where they cooked. They made magic happen, you know, whether it is magic, magic or food. You are providing sustenance for your family. So he yeah. takes you through all of that. He talks about it's a transformative device. Um, then he takes us to chapter 12, which is witch. And that's where he talks about the fact that prior to the middle of the 16th century, there's no evidence of Carwin even being associated with witchcraft. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he puts that in chapter 12, instead of saying in the beginning, I think it's great because you're on this journey and then your mind is kind of like, wait, what? Right? Yeah. Because here you are reconstructing this thing going, okay, so Carwin was, even if she was a, wasn't a goddess, she was this magical witch. Wait, what? Wait, she mm -hmm. wasn't? And then of course... Um, you find out that the reason she wasn't is because, well, when you say witch before the 16th century or even in the 16th century, you're talking about a malevolent spirit. We're talking about, um, you know, once Christianity had taken hold. Yes. And when it comes to whales, they didn't recognize that, right? Magic, sorcery, enchantment, those were essential parts of society. Like, duh. Like, these people existed, Mm -hmm. And to me, that was so beautiful. This whole idea that, you know, we talk about oh, you know, how witches were treated, how witches are treated now, how we have to be worried. And then to know there's a society that's like, but magic, like they don't use the word witch, but mm -hmm. these people have always existed. Like, what is your problem? What do you, what do you not understand about these people? Yeah. And I, I have to admit, I loved that. Right. Um, he talks about the white goddess, how Robert Graves, it's all about Carrot when we talked about. Uh, the white goddess before um he talks about how carolyn was introduced again in the 80s into witchcraft and they're talking about janet and Stuart farrar's the witch's goddess so people yes. who are interested in following carolyn i just wanted to add some of that so it's not like totally gone and then chapter 15 is i, I love i love the title of it a pig by any other name so if you yes. are somebody who follows carolyn you know that um Pigs are associated with Caradwin. It is one of her animals. Um, and then he does the same thing that he's done with the cauldron, the same thing that he does with her name, he does with pigs. Yes. To give you a better understanding. Um, so I just wanted people to know that simply because, you know, it sounds like what we're talking about is something that anybody can pick up, and you can. But if you are a devotee to Caradwin, you are going to get pieces. Oh, yeah. And one of the things that he does quite brilliantly is he takes poetry, and he writes it in Welsh, and then he writes it in English, and then he talks to us about it. So, you know, especially if you're like, oh, should I read these things? You have little excerpts from different things so that if something calls to you, you can then research yes. that poem and go deeper into that. Then we have chapter 16, which I thought was also really important because I don't know if other people feel this way, but there is no death. Right? Yes. You cannot have, right? Death is, he says, is the release from responsibilities and experiences of being alive. Like you are gone. You can't be gone. You can't be nothing and have a rebirth, is what he's trying to say. And it immediately, yeah. immediately made me think of butterflies. When the caterpillars go into a cocoon and they become mush, but the brain is in there. They're not dead. Yeah. You can't have a rebirth into a butterfly. If the caterpillar dies, if you crush a caterpillar between your feet, it's dead. So I feel like we never talk about that, but that makes a lot of sense. 
And it's actually a thing that like, if you, if you even think about it for a second, like when you do the butterfly experiment in like first grade, sometimes the cocoons don't open. Sometimes the butterflies do, d- the caterpillars die. Yeah. They don't become butterflies when right. they die. Right. You can't. So I think that's really important. Because we're talking about the almond, we're, because we're talking about this idea of transformation, it, it needs you to be alive in order to transform into something else. So yes. he says that it's not correct um, to see her. And, and Welsh bardic tradition does not attach Caridwen to death or, you know, some sort of dark entity at all. Yeah. Because she's not about death. She's about rebirth. And because she's been associated with death, people have seen her as a crone. When he says, again, wrong, you know, mm-hmm. if she is giving life, she is always a mother. And that's how she should be seen. She is powerful. She's loving, vengeful, flawed, and powerful. And I can say yes, 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 and yes. <laughs> to all that. Yeah. Um, she, he also says that it's Carowin, Caridwin who activates the initiate's journey. And I think we hear that from a lot of people, that the gods choose mm-hmm. you. But I think even yeah. if you choose Caridwin, she's the one who's going to push you. But I believe, from my experiences, she's never going to push you more than you can do at any moment. She expects a lot from her children, but I think she also understands when you just can't. She's not Mm going to let you off the hook. Eventually, you got to get up and do it. But you can take a time out. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, I just wanted to mention all that in reference to Karen Wynn before we keep going on. There's a chapter in here that I am in love with. Um, and I actually brought the book instead of writing all this out, I actually brought it with me and it is appropriate appropriation. Yeah. Is that what you wanted to talk about next? So good. This is so good. It is. So this is the beginning of the stirring the cauldron ritual and practice section, which in and of itself is a great section. Yes. Um, especially for those who are like actively working or intending to work with Caridwin because it gives you stuff to do. That is specifically related to her and to help you with your practice. Absolutely. But Home Dog straight up starts this section talking about cultural appropriation. And I love it because I feel like a lot of times we don't talk about it in the context of places like Wales. Yeah. So he says, um, and I love how he starts it. There's a strong possibility that you reading this book right now may not be Welsh or have any connection to Wales. One of the things that I really love that he does that, I don't know, just made, gave me the warm and fuzzies is that he said, we, she wouldn't have gotten where she is right now if it hadn't been for people outside of Wales going, oh, wow, and elevating mm-hmm. her. So I think he also has a lot of respect for the fact that the people that have come to Caridwen outside of Wales have had respect for her and respect yes. for the Welsh people. And therefore, he's like, you know what? It's good. Like, you got this. You can do this. But he does give you tips on how to develop yes. a non-appropriative practice, which I think is good no matter which god or goddess or thing you want to do. So can we, should we go over them? Because I really like them. Absolutely, we should. Okay. Yes. So he says, honor the history of the people that preserve the material that you now work with. He says earlier in the book, you don't have to learn Welsh, but you should know some terms. You should know how to pronounce them. 
And it's not a yes. bad idea to learn Welsh, but obviously everybody may not be able to. Um, so he says, that's why he gives you even pronunciations in the back. He tells you where to go to listen to some of this in Welsh. Mm -hmm. So I think that's great to be able to know the history of the people. And he does that really beautifully in the book. Honor the bards that strive to learn and perpetuate the material you can easily access today. Yeah. They didn't have the internet, folks. So if you think, well, why did they say it this way? And then they said something else and went, hey, cut them slack because they didn't have any of the things we have today. So we have to mm -hmm. we give them a lot of respect because they really took it upon themselves to learn this stuff and to do the best they could with it. Strive to understand the history, development, and evolution of the language. Our language is a complex and living thing that works on multiple levels of meaning. And I think that's true of any language. I agree. So I think that's really important. I think, you know, and I don't want to tell people they shouldn't do stuff, but I think if you're not willing to attempt some of these things, then you have to ask yourself, why am I going near this? Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Why do I think I should be doing this if I can't even honor those people who, for all intents and purposes, created this? Yeah. Right? Um, oh, he does say it in this bullet point. Learn a little of the language. You don't need to be fluent, but have a go. The sense of achievement from being able to offer a simple song of praise, a prayer, or an invocation will truly move you. Words have power. And I'm going to say you can even butcher it because you're probably going to butcher it anyway. So give yourself yeah. permission to butcher it. Give yourself permission to try the best you can. And, 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 and it's okay. You're not going to get it 100%. As we have discussed, time makes everything better. Yeah. You got to start off bad at something. Yeah. And I think we don't like that. I don't think anybody likes that. No, and this is a th <laughs> this is a bigger problem, so I will not unpack it fully. But a lot of people see skills as like inherent talents, right? Like, oh, you're just you're just naturally good at art. You're just naturally good at singing. And for a lot of those people, it's just that they started doing them when they were kids. And kids are allowed to fuck up. Yeah. Kids are allowed to make mistakes and and do ugly things that aren't you know beautiful and skillful. But when we become adults, we're expected to be fully formed. And if you're not good at something as an adult, you're not good at it. That's just the end. Which I do feel like is a little counterintuitive to this whole idea of, like, learning. You need to learn. Yeah. How do you learn something if you're not bad at it first? Yeah, it's true. Honor the magic the bards apply to sound. Sound is a conduit of magical intent. Learn to pronounce words of power, especially names. Yeah. You should always learn how to pronounce people's names. It's respectful. Yeah. Whether they're gods or not. Agreed. Yeah. Um, understand and honor that the Welsh Celtic material is also of the present as a living tradition. We are here today, right now. Speak to us. We don't bite. <laughs> I like that. We can help. <laughs> yeah. We love the fact our gods and goddesses and myths have spread their wings to inspire the world. And I'm going to say... I I'm pretty sure anybody feels this way. I think the problem yeah. is with some traditions, 
people have just taken it as fact. Like, I can just take this. Mm-hmm. If, you know, you come from, if you're in the U.S., I'm going to talk to about the U.S. I'm not going to go into the history of, of Europe right now. But if you're in the U.S. and you are taking from indigenous people, now think about the history. Go back to the other bullet point, he said. Know the history. So mm-hmm. when you just take and when you ask and somebody says no and you think, well, why shouldn't I? You probably can. I'm not going to say you can't do the thing. But try to understand why some people may not be as open as he is. Why some people yeah. may feel hurt or why some people might feel made fun of their whole lives. And now somebody who looks like a person who once hurt them wants to take something from them. Yeah. So, you know, you come something, you come to something with an honest love of learning, you will find the person who will be open, give people time. Yeah. You know, because I think if somebody came to me and wanted to learn something of mine, my first initial reaction would be no. And then I think if this person persisted and I saw that they were learning stuff, I think that might change my mind. I I don't think, I know it would change my mind, you know? So I think you have to just, you know, he said this, I think everybody feels this way because I do think that the myths and gods and goddesses are here for everybody. But, you know, tread lightly and and look at the other bullet points and see how you can do some of that. Um, And I think there's a reason why that one is lower than, you know, honoring the history and, and learning the language. I think that there are some basic signs of respect that you can show Right. Before you start doing the other stuff. And I think if you show that and you come to something like he says, speak to us. Yeah, I think that goes a long way to having people go, yeah, you really do have a deep love and respect for this. Absolutely. I want you to And I think this. it's important that he says speak to us and not like ask us for help. Speak right. to us like people. We are people. Right. Right. Come, come join me in conversation, not get in my DMs and be like, what is a love spell that will make my boyfriend love me? You know, like, it's... When you come to a thing and you're like, I need you to tell me, like, exactly how the Tainos did their moon ceremonies so that I can... That's, like, kind of condescending and rude. Like, I'm not about that. But if somebody were to come to you and be like, hey, I'm really interested in this, you know, my connection to this Taino practice, is this something we could talk about? I feel like that's a different context. That is a different context. One of them is nice. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Read the myths and engage with them as reflections of your internal mythological landscape. And I like that. Take the myths and make them personal. Yes. What is it saying to you? What is it saying to you today versus maybe two years from now? What are you getting from them? Just like the people, the myths are alive. They're there for a reason. They've endured for a reason. Read them. Uh, If you're able... Pilgrimage to the lands that gave rise to the myths. Whilst Carowin is accessible throughout the world, there is something about being in her waters that will change you forever. And before you ask, yes, yes, when all this craziness and all this whatever is over. What's your yeah, next vacation? I know I want to go to Wales. Absolutely. Why wouldn't I want to go there? Um, yeah. Ugh, who knows when we'll ever be able to do anything normally again, but, you know. Hopefully. Time cures all wounds. There you go. Speak to local people about their homeland. And this is something that I do no matter where I travel. Mm -hmm. People love to talk about 
if you, if you, you know, anything about the history of where they're from. Look, even as Americans, even if you're first generation, someone's asked me about New York. I got so many things to tell you. Look, what I love the most about people coming to New York City is when they say to me, and it doesn't happen very often, show me something that like is not on the tourist guides that you think is really cool. And I have never disappointed people. Because I always ask them, what do you like? What are some of the things you would you like to, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. then I can say, we're going here. You're proud as hell to show people where you're from, you know? I think as a suburban, mm-hmm. it's a thing, that is a thing that is desperately missing from America. I think so many of us are looking at other cultures for our religion and spirituality because we have absolutely zero connection to the land that we live on. And part of that is because obviously it is stolen. But the other part of it is capitalism fully separates you from the rest of the world, right? Like I, this has been a thing that I have been working on for years, like literally since I was 15 years old. And my connection to the land is still pretty much exclusively like the wind, Mm. I, I've i never been in one place long enough to feel like I know the the spirits and the energy of that place. And so if somebody were to come in and be like, tell me about this small town in <laughs> lower New York State, I would be like, oh, yeah, well, we've got a mall. Um, you know, they, these are my favorite places to eat. Right. But there's nothing that I'm like, I'm not excited about this place that I keep almost saying out loud on the podcast. <laughs> I'm not excited about it. I mean, I grew up in Washington Heights, which is in Manhattan, which is the New York and New York, New York. I really, when I think about what I want to show people, I can't think of anything I really want to show them in Washington Heights, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But I always think of myself as part of New York, period. And the fact that there's so many parts of New York that I don't know. I don't know upstate New York. I've driven past Albany. I've never even stopped in Albany. You know, Um, I'd like to see more of New York. I think that there's something really awesome about this state. It's got a lot of flaws. But there's things that make me really excited to if I had to be born in the United States, I'm glad I was born in New York. Yeah, but I do think there's like a little bit of a difference because I do think New York City has a culture. Yeah, it did. Do you know what I mean? It's got a yeah. vibe. It's got an energy. Whereas like a lot of suburban places are very empty. Well, I culturally. hate to break it to you. I kind of feel like that's what's happening to New York. I mean, you used to go to different neighborhoods and feel a different vibe. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and gentrification started and now it's all, yeah, that's fair. That's so, fair. Anyway, honor the Welsh bardic tradition and its strict complex system of bardic meter by creating and vocalizing prayers, incantations, and vocal offerings in rhyme. This takes effort and dedication. It's one of my favorite things in the whole world. I love that. I mean, it it really is. I mean, there's nothing like a spell, incantation, whatever you want to call it, and having it rhyme is just, again, it should be musical. And I get that because the more musical it sounds, the happier I am to say it. The happier I am to say it, the more invested I am. So mm-hmm. even to myself, I wrote the words, but I also I hear them and they sound wonderful. Um, honor the river of continuation that you step into when you take the above into account. Be a part of it, not just an observer. So do not dip your toe. Go in. The water's mm-hmm. fine, is what he's saying. 
go with the flow, see where it goes. You know, I love that. Develop sacred relationship that comes from a place of deep honor. I don't even know what to say about that one because I kind of feel like that's a, a give me, but the fact that it's there tells me it may not be for everybody because obviously he has experience. So, yeah, you know, um, and the last one, work from a platform of love, wisdom, and integrity. And I got to say, I think that that is really something that we can say goes as far back as Gardner. I would say it goes as far back as um, humanity gaining sentience. Okay. I'll go with that. I, I think it's inherent to the human spirit. And I think so much of like the societies that we live in force us to be alienated from the human spirit. Mm-hmm. And I think that goes back to his discussion of enchantment and et cetera. But I think that like those last two bullet points aren't don't necessarily – I don't think you need to take them as like a warning, right? Like, oh, you no. need to do – But just a, a reminder that like this is how people – existed for millennia yeah but i'm just going back to gardner in the sense that as we start reading texts about witchcraft i think yes. there's always been this idea that you should have love you should learn something and you should have integrity so that's yeah. what i meant i don't mean I like agree. people in general i'm talking about witches so i think that he's you know definitely coming from this at a place that we've heard this stuff before but he's just reminding yeah. us. And then, of course, he talks about creating a cal- uh, cauldron, <laughs> creating a Caridwin altar. Um. This last section, I think, is is really great as far mm. as walking you through entering into a practice with Caridwin. Yes. Um, like, it, it's very well written. It's easy to understand. It, it's giving you so many – like, he does things in different contexts. So there's a poem. There's a sigil. There's, like, a visualization. It's it's really well done. And then, of course, at the end, you have a guide to Welsh pronunciation. You have a Which glossary. is super helpful. Very, very helpful. And then, of course, you have resources and bibliography. Um, Which he, everyone knows I'm obsessed with. He does end the book. I'm going to end it with a quote this time. I love it. And now she has found you. Where there is inspiration, there is magic. Where there is magic, there is hope. Where there is hope, there is always a brighter future. She is muse, she is goddess, she is witch, she is Caridwen. And I think during these times, especially, that we're living through, find what inspires you. Find what gives you hope, you know, and always hope for a brighter future because it can happen. So whether it's a Caridwen, um devotion that you have or to somebody else i think that all of that is a great way to end the book it was a really good book it's phenomenal so you know i we would love to know what people think again it's a brand new book so i don't know that many people have read it um i'm hoping that people have yeah and i mean we we will continue to exist so whenever you read it yeah let us know let us know what you think, especially if Caridwen is your goddess or one of the goddesses you work with. Tell us what you think of the book. Um, tell us if you want us to read, or in this case, make Gemini read. Um, <laughs> other from the cauldrons. Yeah. Um, any other books. But, you know, I'm kind, I kind of feel like he raised the bar as to what I want out of a book. Yeah, I, um, this is the kind of text that I dream about. Mm. Like this is the kind of, this is not, I don't think it's a one-on-one book by any means. 
Um, and I don't mean that because I think the content itself is difficult. I think it's just very academic. Mm. But it's fantastic. It's yeah. it's beautifully written, wonderfully analyzed. I think it it causes you to think critically about so many aspects of your practice. And I'm not even coming at it from the context of having worked with this goddess, so I can't imagine what reading it was for you. But it's just fantastic. Yeah. And if you know of any other book that you feel has this level of writing in it about a different god, goddess, or whatever, please let us know. It does not have to be, you know, a god or goddess that we even know about. Just let us know. We'd love to know more books like this because I think it's so helpful. So once again, just to end the way we started, whether you plan to work with Carolyn or not, I think it's just such a great book to see what you should be looking for. Agreed. You know, I think this is this is it. I think we've peaked with books. I think that's the end of the podcast. <laughs> okay. I can't imagine that our listeners would be happy about that. No, no. Um, but I'll take a break. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the end. But yeah. So I think 2022 is starting out with a bang because we loved Everyday Magic. We did. We love this. So... I'm hoping for three out of three. I'm hoping that the next book is another oh like, God. wow. That's a lot of pressure. I'm crossing it, my fingers. It is. But hey, wouldn't that be awesome if like we didn't have anything negative awesome. to say? Oh, you like I would love that. So I, I can guarantee up. you that's not happening. But <laughs> that'll be that's that's we'll get there when we get there. We've got oh, a whole okay. year worth of books to get to. Yeah. Thank you so much to listen for listening to us. You guys are amazing. We love you. Please reach out. Email, Instagram DMs, Carrier Pigeon. We love hearing from you. We love responding to you. We love your input. We definitely want to know your input on this book, especially because it was pretty powerful for both of us. Thank you to Kano and Moore for our intro and outro music. And remember, if you're following the moons, you're following us. Mm-hmm.